Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In today's episode, Richard and I discuss the parable of the Merciful Father, a story commonly and unfortunately known by the name of its secondary character, the Prodigal Son. Where modern hearers of the Bible expect the Father to show mercy in the face of unspeakable betrayal, Richard and I discuss how, taken in its proper context, the Father's act of compassion is both incorrect and unjust. This raises questions about the problems of fairness and entitlement as they relate to grace and thanksgiving in the biblical tradition. The text discussed in today's episode is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. You are listening to the 11th episode of the Bible as Literature podcast. Now that we're into Lent, halfway over, halfway through now, just been reflecting over the readings that we did during the Triodion and how those are preparing us for Lent and giving us the correct mindset for how to understand Lent. And I was just remembering the sermon that you gave over the prodigal son. Could you talk a little bit about that? Refresh my memory exactly what you talked about because there were some interesting points there. Absolutely. Before we jump into that, though, for listeners who aren't familiar with Eastern Christianity, the Triodion is a text that contains special prayers for the pre-Lenten and Lenten period, and also assigns the readings. There's a special lectionary associated Uh with the Triodion. So what Rich is referring to is the lectionary cycle leading up to Lent, in Uh which the story of the prodigal son is assigned a special Sunday in preparation for Lent. So thinking back to that sermon, I think it's important, again, as we always say when we're talking about Scripture, I think it's important always not to project our own cultural assumptions or Mm -hmm. paradigms onto the text. And one of the greatest faults of people who hear this story is that they see the father embracing the son when he comes back from his travel abroad, squandering his father's inheritance. And they behave as though it is appropriate. They have an emotional, sentimental response. Oh, how nice that the father accepted him back. Right. That's what all fathers should do. And suddenly the story of the prodigal son becomes a kind of Hallmark card or an American uh-huh. Express commercial about a father and a son holding hands. But I think that this reading of the text just completely misses the point of what's going on. Yeah. No, and I, I think that since it's called the prodigal son and so much of the text is about what the younger son does and what he says and how he acts and what he's thinking, it's easy for us to put our focus on the son in that story. Well, I think it's a mistake. As you know, as, as Father Paul Tarazi has said often in his lectures on this text, it's wrong. It's a mistake to refer to this as the story of the prodigal son. It's mm-hmm. actually the story of the merciful father because uh-huh. what the father does is unacceptable on many levels to anyone who's thinking and rational, especially in an Eastern context. It's unacceptable uh-huh. that he accepts the son back. It's also unprecedented. So that's really where the real action in the story is. I mean, think about it. Uh-huh. Contextualize it. Your son comes to you mm-hmm. and says, look, you're still living, but I would like to take my share of your inheritance now as though you're already dead and go off to a foreign land and squander it on loose living and prostitutes. Are you good with that, Dad? Thanks. Right. Right? Even, even, and this is the sad part about the delusional way in which we hear the story, even an American parent, while they give lip service to sentimentality and Hallmark cards, would be deeply offended and deeply put off by this kind of a gesture from a child, no, I son mean, or daughter. You know. My mom's retired, and she travels with the money. Just imagine that I would take half the money now, and she wouldn't have the money to 
enjoy her retirement. Even in an American setting, you work hard for the money, you work hard, you build it up, you build up your estate, and then a kid who hasn't done any work, hasn't done anything, just says, oh, I want half of it. Right, no. Extending beyond the vanity of our first world problems, inability to travel, or I get less of an inheritance because my brother stole most of the money. Going Uh beyond that, in the ancient Near East, as we discussed last week, where the father has really important economic responsibility to his family and to the broader society to make sure that no one goes hungry, no one is homeless, Uh no one is abandoned. And there's pressure on him in that setting to make sure the next generation can continue that responsibility for the life of the community, not for the family name or pride or ego as we do in our contemporary Uh setting. It's a serious transgression, you know, Mm -hmm. to use the Hebrew word pesha. It's a serious Mm -hmm. transgression against the father and by extension against the well-being of the entire community to jeopardize half of its capital, half of its material capacity. When someone does that, when someone threatens the security and stability of a country or a community or a family, the correct thing to do is, as Paul says in the New Testament, is to hand them over to Satan. If they can't be reasoned with and can't be brought into the fold to Uh behave correctly, you put them outside of the fold for two reasons. One, because you hope that by handing them over to the consequence of their own folly, they will actually have the chance of still growing, but also and primarily to protect the community for which you're responsible. Right. So it was completely incorrect, and this was the thrust of the sermon, and I saw jaws drop when I said it. It was incorrect for the merciful father to accept his son back. Right. No, it reminds me of the, the stories in the prophets where not only does the Lord have to deal with the bad shepherds, he has to deal with the aggressive goats in the flock Absolutely. because of the damage that they cause. So the bad shepherd doesn't take care of the bad goats, so the Lord has to take care of both. So the goats themselves that are misbehaving are just as dangerous as bad shepherds. Right. So what the story is doing is setting up the addressee to scoff at the father, to judge the father, to ask why would he accept this guy back? The way the story is written, if you are hearing it correctly, it puts you in a position to judge the father and to identify with the older son. But the trick is that once you judge the father and identify with the older son, within the broader movement of the narrative, you're supposed to come to the realization that you actually are the prodigal. So once you've condemned the father, what you've done is rejected God's mercy by saying you don't deserve it because you function like the prodigal. Yeah, exactly. And once you identify with the older son, I mean, then it's it's, it's Mm -hmm. it's an extension of this beautiful exchange between Nathan and David in the Old Testament. You are condemning yourself. Yeah, you are the man. You are the man. So, But if you sentimentalize it and start talking about how the job of a father is to pamper his children, you miss out entirely on the wisdom of Scripture. Right. Well, it seems like the, the father is, not only is he being incorrect in doing this, he seems even uh, in legal terms unjust for doing this. Oh, it's unfair, right. And this is it's I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's it's absolutely unjust and unfair. And this is why when I'm talking to parents about raising children in a uh-huh. parish setting, I right. consistently consistently remind them that this emphasis on fairness mm-hmm. and equality with respect to children is extremely destructive. Mm-hmm. And that's a really hard concept for American ears because we place uh-huh. so much so much of our rhetoric places so much value on equality and fairness. Right. And we're not talking about how we treat people of different genders or races. That's mm-hmm. not when we talk about fairness in this setting what we're talking about is the problem of entitlement with children with respect to God's grace because God gives to whom he wants to give in uh-huh. life and he takes away from whom he wants to take away. And I think the story it seems to me in thinking about 
about this is it's working to break down our concept of what is just and our concept of justice. I mean, according to human justice, the older son is correct. The younger son was jeopardizing the livelihood of the community. The older son was working towards the livelihood of the community. So therefore, why would the younger son get something better than the older son? This is absolutely unjust. It's unjust and unfair, which is why, again, I'll go back to the example of raising children, as opposed to constantly making sure all my kids get equal portions and they all get the same toys and they're mm -hmm. all treated fairly. I very purposefully will give something to one child and not give it to the other. Because if you always give everything to every child, they're going to develop an attitude where they expect to be treated a certain way. Right. But if God were to behave that way, then there would be no hope for the prodigal in Scripture. And the funny thing about that wisdom is that it's how life works. This person gets cancer, and this person doesn't get cancer. No, and if you're making sure to give everybody the same thing every single time, what does that teach people to do? That teaches people to look at everybody else's plate and make sure that everybody that you didn't get any less or any more than anybody else, and then you are always got your eye on other people's plates rather than looking at your own plate. Because the sin is this attitude that we deserve a certain portion exactly. or we are entitled, when in fact we are always functionally the prodigal. We are always in a position where what was taken away from us as judgment is deserved, and what is given to us as grace is an undeserved gift. And scripture insists on this mentality functionally. The whole language of earning and deserving is antithetical to the kind of love that scripture is pushing us toward. Right. No, it reminds me of the parable where you have the workers who are called into the field and some called in the first part of the day and then called in the third hour, sixth hour, etc. And according to justice, people who work longer should get paid more. I know that if there was somebody at my job who was part-time doing the same work as me and they got the same paycheck at the end of two weeks as I did, I would be frustrated with that. Of course. That just, like, it makes no sense. But the Lord says, well, this is what you agreed to. Why are you looking at what the other people are being paid? This is what the Lord keeps trying to do in Scripture, is keeps trying to get people to focus on what they have and the gratitude that needs to be behind that. And this is what the Father's speech to the older son seems to say, that, look, you were given everything as a gift all along. The older son's sin is that he thinks that he earned everything that he got up until that point. When the father's saying, no, 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 you aren't getting what you deserve, because when you think you're getting what you deserve, then you think that other people should get what they deserve, and you get to be the judge over right. them. Right, and, and notice the whole discussion is based on this temporal framework uh -huh. that insists upon material compensation, right. material comfort. Compensation is a good word. Ultimately, Scripture's saying, look, you have a fate in life. Right. You have and you don't have. You were given, it was taken away. All these things are passing away. All these things are temporal, what Paul calls of the flesh, or right. according, you know, according to the flesh. What matters is the attitude, so to speak, right. that yeah, exactly. my teaching produces in you toward life in general, and specifically your neighbor within the context of life in general. Sure. Because what really counts for the life of the world, for the sake of of the human family, which is the real family that God is always addressing in his mashal, his parable, uh -huh. is that we live together in fellowship. Notice how when you are no longer thinking about faith as a compensation program for retirement, your priorities shift from being selfish and self-serving and inward to being focused on the needs of the neighbor, especially those who are needier than you. And I think that having that focus on those who are needier than us and having gratitude for what we have is the main focus. 
But in order to get to that focus, we have to take our mind off of our own understanding of what is just. And I think that coming back to this idea that the Triodian is preparing us for how we're supposed to understand Lent, it is unfair that as Orthodox, we have to fast and the Protestants and the Catholics don't fast. Well, the Catholics should be fasting, but they jettisoned that. And the Protestants, they jettisoned a long time ago and will complain and will complain just like, why do they get to have Easter just as much as we have? Well, actually, we have better Easter. So we strove harder during the fast, so we deserve a better Pascha. So it's only just that we get a better Pascha than everybody else. And this is how our sick kind of justice seeps into our way of thinking because we start thinking like the older son. Aha, we get a better Pascha because we worked harder and we served you, Father, in your house all these years. Why would the Protestants get as good a party with their friends like we do at our Pascha? So we earned our Pascha. So, so note how in that example, what is actually produced is racism. Racism towards people of other faiths, other communities, and other backgrounds. So right. racism is a consequence of the fairness entitlement mentality with respect to the good work of the gospel on earth. Self-justification. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. But there's another more insidious consequence that is much broader and extends far beyond the borders of religious fundamentalism. Take, for example, the attitude of people in our country, our home, the United States, towards people in the third world. Now, this country does a lot of wonderful charitable giving, but just look at how we rationalize our wealth and their poverty. Because we're so individualistic in our attitude and believe so much in this idea of rugged individualism and earning your own way in life and so forth. And justice in the fleshly sense. And justice in the fleshly sense. We completely reject a Eucharistic attitude towards God. Mm -hmm. We reject a Eucharistic attitude towards life because we earned it. And Uh then we look at the one who is in need and we reject the commandment or the call to charity, to charity, because Mm -hmm. just like we earned what we have, Obviously, something is wrong with the people in Latin America. Something must be wrong with the people in Africa. Something must be wrong with the people in the Middle East, or they would be as great as we are. I mean, this is racism and economic tyranny wrapped up in one, again, because of this idea that we earn the things that God provides for us. It's such an important question. And then we think if we could just teach them to be like us, then they'll be better. I mean, this is like the line in the gospel about traversing land and sea to make a single proselyte. And then once you can convert them, they're twice a child of hell as you are. Right. It's a huge problem. I, I heard of a very interesting, very practical way of viewing this difference among people. And some HR departments do this in looking at different people. It's called the paperclip test. You have a pile of paperclips. Take a paperclip if you're a man. Put a paperclip. Take a paperclip away if you are a woman. Take a paperclip if your parents own their home. Put a paperclip back if your parents didn't own their home. Take a paperclip if your parents were college educated put a paperclip back if you're the first one in your family to go to college. And then at the end of a series of 20 tests, see who has the more paperclips. Now, all of these came without anything that you did. This pile of paperclips or a complete lack of paperclips is how you begin life through nothing that you did. And this is a wonderful way to look at the way justice actually works 
in the Lord's terms, that you start off with what you start off with, and it's grossly unfair to the eye. You can't make one hair on your head black or white, the Lord says. Genesis is the key. In a modern setting where people are so afraid of science, unfortunately, the wisdom of Genesis is lost on an entire generation. Scripture is not concerned with whether or not God created the universe. The most important thing is to make it very clear in Genesis that you, the addressee, did not create the universe. That's the key. Right. So no matter what your attitude is about religion or about scripture, if you are a logical person, you have to accept that you did not make the heavens and the earth, that you did not make them. You did not make the city in which you live. You did not make your friends and you did not make yourself. If we can just begin there logically, any claim you make about earning and striving and achieving is... Uh, delusional. And I think the culmination for all of us as we're entering the second half of Lent, the whole culmination of unfairness is the crucifixion of Jesus, yes, which is the right. ultimate unfairness. And it's so beautifully laid out that there was an unjust trial, there was unfair accusations, there was false accusations, there was unfair betrayal of Jesus, and even God himself allowed Jesus to be crucified in spite of his complete innocence. The whole of scripture is trying to get us to understand this to be the way of the world. This is the way that the universe functions. More importantly, Jesus, because he accepted the instruction, the Torah of his father, he Mm -hmm. accepted his instruction that you have to get the short end of the stick in order to teach them. Right. In doing so, the text is not only saying life isn't fair, Mm -hmm. but that those who love not only do not demand fairness, they abdicate fairness for the sake of the others. Right. Very essential. And what's so powerful about the scriptural passion and the crucifixion is that it is the addressee of the text, ultimately, who is putting Jesus to death. And this plays out in various liturgical traditions. And people understand this piety, but it's not just a nice way to say, oh, yeah, I'm a bad person. No, no. No, honestly, you put Jesus to death. And your uh, sense of justice is what killed him. Correct. And so now you better hope that God doesn't have your sense of justice because his son is going to come back. Right. I mean, this is the function of the resurrection. There's an example I give teaching young adults, and they always respond very positively because it triggers the seeds of logic in their forming brains. But there's a paradigm in, in American films where when you go to see an action film and there's an action character who is well known and who dies in the first five minutes of the film, You know that they're a famous Hollywood star and the film's about them, so you know they're going to come back. And you know that when they are raised from the dead in the early part of the film, they're coming back for one reason. That's to pay back everybody who hurt him in the beginning. (laughs) Right. This is actually the correct understanding of how the resurrection functions in the Uh New Testament. And you have to view the resurrection with that kind of trepidation in the same way you have to understand how unprecedented the action of the merciful father was. You cannot Uh look at the resurrection and say, oh, yes, but he loves me and he's going to accept me. No, Paul is clear. He's going to raise the dead when he comes, and he's going to judge them. Some will be raised unto condemnation and some unto life, which means that there is a fly in the ointment on Pascha. Mm -hmm. So you're left dangling. Lord, if I get what I deserve, there's no hope for me. No, I just imagine, I'm playing a mind game here. Imagine we have the story of the prodigal son and their twins. And when the younger son comes back, the older son decides to switch places and say, okay, I'll become the servant and I'll eat the waste for the pigs and you can have my spot at the table with the father. And he says, okay, I'll do it, which is crazy. But there's one thing, the younger brother who was prodigal, he's going to be worried. 
because if ever the other brother spills the beans, he's going to be in big trouble. So he's just hoping that his older brother is going to continue to be merciful and will not stop being merciful by taking his place as being a servant. This is exactly how grace functions, Richard. I've read Galatians probably hundreds of times by Mm -hmm. now, you know, working on this very question. And to me, it's very clear in Scripture that you begin life with an overdrawn bank account. And the debt that you owe God for all of his bounty and all of his mercy and generosity and loving kindness is so great that no matter how much you do and you strive to achieve and whatever acts of kindness and charity and love you commit in life, you never ever can make up that deficit. And the only way to get people to see the vast scope of this deficit is to constantly hammer them with the worst functional behaviors in Scripture and impose those functional behaviors on them. In other words, you might say when you're speaking to the assembly, well, not everyone in church is that bad, Father Mark. To which I reply, you know, I don't know what people in church are. I know that the text is imposing that everyone who assembles in church is a rotten sinner because it's a mechanism in the biblical tradition to help us come to realize that no matter who we are, great or small, no matter what evils or good we've committed in life, we have this gap that can't be closed with respect to God's generosity and mercy. Well, look, the person who is able to say not everyone is so bad, based on what? Based on their belief that they're not so bad. And the the measure that they use is their human sense of justice, which is exactly the sin of the older brother. And the human sense of justice is self-justifying. That's the problem. And it blinds us to the reality of the crucifixion, ultimately, the ultimate unfair act. But like you said about the older brother, when you realize, when the younger is receiving the generosity from the older, when he realizes the debt is not payable, Right. Then he realizes, as you said very eloquently, that every day is charity. Every day is a gift. Once you understand it, then you embody the expression mm. from Anglo-Saxon culture, there but for the grace of God go I. And suddenly the Arabs and the Africans and the Latin Americans don't look so stupid or backward exactly. to you anymore. You realize that we're all part of the same family. Right. No, the one who says not everybody is so bad in, in church, Father, I mean, they're the ones who are looking at everybody's plate measuring everybody up, seeing who is good and who is bad, and using a warped human fleshly sense of justice. Because when their mother, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you, because when their mother took them to the grocery store, she made sure she bought the popsicle package that had all the same colors and just the right number of, of right, popsicles. Right, right, because if everyone doesn't get red, then, that's always, oh that's my always God, a problem. Right, exactly. <laughs> You're creating a bunch of platonic tyrants. <laughs> exactly. Anyways, this was a really great conversation. I, I, I appreciate your time right, today, Dr. Benton, and, you know, look forward to... Uh, yeah, look forward to next time. just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.